may be seated. It was a a real honor to be with you this morning. I bring greetings from Northside up in Melbourne, and uh, I just thank you for the session here. Thank your pastor for giving me this opportunity to bring you the word. We're going to be looking at Ezekiel 36 this morning. So if you have your Bibles, if you open them up to Ezekiel 36, we're going to be reading from verses 22 to 32. I'm going to be reading from the ESV version. And as I read, I want you to think about this. Martin Luther says, the sweetness of the gospel is found in the pronouns. So as I read this passage, think of the pronouns and how it brings out the sweetness of the gospel. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, who through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanlinesses. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all your uncleanlinesses and I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant And you will never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were no that were not good. And you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord God. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways O house of Israel. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we come to you now humbly. We pray that we will sit under the authority of your word and that you will speak to us. That you will refresh us. 
that you will clean us once again. And that you will apply fresh and new the salve of Jesus Christ to our hearts and to our minds. And that indeed we will leave this place looking more like Jesus than when we came. We pray for your spirit to open our ears and our minds. It's in Christ's name that we pray these things. Amen. In my house, my wife has a list. Some of you husbands know what that's like to have a list. This list is a daddy-do list. It's not for me, though. It's for her dad. Because her dad is a very handy guy. I am not a very handy guy. About two years ago, I decided that I wanted to put in a paver path alongside our driveway And so I went to Home Depot and I bought the pavers and I had a shovel that somebody had given me years ago and I figured that would work. And and so I started working. I figured it would take about an hour. So I carved out about an hour on a Saturday morning. Well, needless to say, six hours later, as I was hacking away at our front yard, basically there had been a matting of roots underneath the grass and it made it almost near impossible to get the grass up. Then I had to go back to Home Depot and go get sand in order to pack everything down and make everything level. I thought it was going to cost about $30. It cost about $100. I thought it was going to take about an hour. It took about six hours. And then when I pulled my vehicle in and by mistake landed on one of those pavers, it cracked. And I realized, you know, I'm not very good at planning when it comes to fixing stuff. Maybe you're like that. Maybe you're not very good at planning. Maybe you're the other way. Maybe you're really good at planning. You figure out all the details and all the minutia. Whether you are really good at planning or not very good at planning, you have experienced, we have all experienced the same thing, and that is what happens when our plans fall apart. On a bigger level, we see this in our culture. We look at our culture, we look at the world we live in, and we think, is there really a plan to all of this? Tornadoes that rip through elementary schools and kill children? Bombers that blow up people for no reason? Disturb men that walk into elementary schools and kill children? What's the plan? In this passage, we see a fundamental, a fundamental truth to Christianity. And that is, God is a God with a plan. He is, Sinclair Ferguson, a theologian, says God is a planning God. We have to know this. And today, we're going to take a look at what that plan is You see, from the very beginning, God had a plan. When he created the world, he had a plan. And his plan was that his creation was going to multiply and take dominion over all the earth. And the whole earth would praise and worship God. That was his plan. And as many of you know, that plan was was sought to be thwarted, interrupted by Satan. He sought to destroy that plan. But we must know 
that he did not do anything to deter or change God's plan. God's plan has always been, as we are going to see today, for God's glory. And even after Satan had tricked Adam and Eve, within potentially minutes of that happening, we don't know the time frame, but God came back into the garden. And in Genesis 3.15 we see God says, Satan, what you, have, what you have expected or used for evil, I am using in my plan. And we're going to see now, today, what that plan is. We're going to look at the details of that plan. God's plan is for his glory and for our good. God's plan is for his glory and for our good. And today we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at God's, the goal of God's plan, the action of God's plan, and the motivation of God's plan. So, as we get started, let's look at what is the goal of God's plan The goal of God's plan, as we see in verse 23 of this chapter, is to vindicate his name. What does it mean to vindicate? Well, in the vernacular, I'm not a very clever guy, so I use the vernacular. Vindicate means to show who is the boss. Vindicate is to show that God is is who he says he is. Does he need to vindicate his name? No. But he wants to vindicate his name. Does he need to show Israel and this world that he is the boss? No. He doesn't need to do that. But he wants to do that. Because it's part of his plan. How have the people profaned God's name? Well, the Israelites during this time had been scattered abroad. They had been taken into exile. On top of that, they had then started to let the culture that they were a part of influence them. If you remember, God chose Israel. He gave them a name and he said, I will be your God and you will be my people. But Israel traded that in, and they profaned his name. Now, profanity, many of you would give me a good definition of profanity, and that is to use the Lord's name in vain, verbally, to say God's name in vain. And that is one definition of profanity. Another definition of profanity is that When God's name is used, or when people claim God's name, but act in a way contrary. That is profaning God's name. When you say, oh, I trust God, but then you rely on your own strength. Oh, I trust God, but you don't do his commandments, and you don't keep them. The Israelites had profaned God's name. They had blasphemed God's name. 
And my friends, God is not a God to be mocked. And so he says, I am going to vindicate my name. So God's goal for his plan is to show the world who he is. There's lots of ways he could have done this. He could have just destroyed everything. He could have come down in a lightning bolt. He could have done a million things to show that he was God. So how does he do it? What's his action? The goal of God's plan is for his glory. The action of God's plan is he calls a people. Look at verse 24. God says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. God's plan, the action of God's plan is he calls his people. Now, the prophets spoke to the people at this time, but they also talk to us today. And we know this because the New Testament gives sheds light on, the, on what the prophets were saying. So there is a present tense to what is going on here. God is going to do this, and there's a future tense that he is going to draw and gather his people. We see this in Revelation 5, 9 through 10, when these There's these creatures and they're around the throne of God and they start to sing and they sing a new song, it says. And they say, worthy are you to take the scroll, to open its seal, for you were slain by your blood. You ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign on the earth. The first action that God does in his plan is he calls a people. This is why your pastor is thousands of miles away. Preaching and encouraging people in a foreign land. Because God says out of all the nations. God's action here that we see in Ezekiel is kind of the uh, fuel for missions. This is why we do missions, because we believe that God is a missional God. That he is gathering and calling a people. What does he do? What is a part of God's plan after calling a people? What does he do to that people? He cleans them. In verse 25, it says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanlinesses, and from all your idols, I will cleanse you. So, God's plan, the goal of God's plan, is for his glory, to vindicate his name. The action of God's plan is he calls a people, and he cleans them. Now, 
fair enough. When my kids get into a sprinkler, they can uh, get more dirty than they actually get clean probably half the time. But this word sprinkle doesn't seem like it has like a force for me. When I read this, I think, what does he, what does he mean just sprinkle? Sprinkle seems not as, you know, if it was a, a fire hose kind of cleaning. But for the people of Israel, they would have understood what sprinkling did. Because this is what they did to all of the items in the temple to make them sacred, to set them apart. They would sprinkle them with water, sometimes with blood, and clean them. Listen to this passage from Hebrews 9, 13 through through 14. It says, For if the blood of goats... And bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctified for the purification of the flesh. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? God sprinkles his people. After he calls them, he cleans them. Any of you that are fishermen, there's a saying, you've got to catch a fish to clean a fish. God calls a people and then he cleans that people. And he, he scrubs them. He, he scrubs them clean of all blemishes. God's plan is is to clean his people. And what does he clean them from? It says idols. Specifically, idols. All their uncleanlinesses and idols. What is an idol? Well, in this, in this day and age, they would actually have idols, like little carved figures, uh, you know, some of, the fa- some of the popular idols of the day were Baal, Ashtaroth, Molech. And they would have these little, ugly little idols set up in their house. And they would worship them. And they would give things to them. They would pray to them. Do we have those idols today? Well, I would venture to say probably many of you would not have these little tiki-style gods in your house. But we certainly do have idols today. The definition of an idol is anything that is good that is made ultimate. Idols are not always evil and bad things. Sometimes they are good things. But when we make them ultimate things, then they are an idol. John Calvin says that our hearts are, many of you know, idol factories. Man, we can crank out some idols. What are some of those idols that vie for your affections and your emotions? We have some easy ones like money, reputation, comfort, Time, your family, church buildings. These are not bad things. These are good things. 
but we have the propensity to make them ultimate things. And this is what God says, I will clean you from. Cleaning is good. The action of God's plan is he calls a people, then he cleans a people. The cleaning that he does here is he says, I will make you right. I will clean you. The word that we use is justified. You are declared right. That's great. That's good news. But God doesn't stop there in his plan. He says, not only will I declare you right, but now I'll give you the ability to live right. We call this word sanctification. In the cleaning, God justifies his people. In the changing, God sanctifies his people. What does he change? In this passage, he changes two things. He says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. What is the heart? Well, he's not just talking about um, that the organ that pumps blood or just um, your emotions. When he talks about the heart, he's talking about your mind and your will and your emotions. Everything is changed. God's plan, the action of God's plan is to call a people, clean a people, and change his people. He changes their heart, their affections. What do you love? What makes you smile? What do you long for? And he changes your spirit. Remember the Bible teaches us, Paul teaches us, that we are to worship in truth and in spirit. Our spirit is the seat of our worship, is in our spirit. What do you worship? What you worship there your heart will be also. If you might say, well, I don't, I don't know. I'm not 100% sure what, what I worship. I don't really know where my heart is. How would I know? It's really easy. What makes you angry? When I sit down at the end of the day in my recliner chair and my children start asking me lots and lots of questions and want to show me what they've done throughout the day, and I start getting angry and angry because I want my time. I want to relax, okay? Stop bothering me. That is where my affections are. What makes you angry if it's taken away from you? That is what we worship, and that's vies for our affections. So, to recap, God's goal is for God's, the goal of God's plan is for God's glory, vindication of his name. The action of God's plan is to call, clean, and change a people. A part of that change, 
we have to be constantly reminded here on earth that we are called and that we are cleaned and that we are changed. And God uses another C word to do that, and that is convict. Conviction is what God uses to remind us of who we are and whose we are. If you look in verse 31, this is the, if you will, a definition for conviction. We're going to go back to 28 through 30, but in those verses he talks about all the good things that he's going to do for his people. And then he says, then you will remember that your, I'm sorry, then you will remember your evil deeds and your deeds that were not good and you will loathe yourself yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations now i have a i have a software program that i can cheat and look at it's not really cheating i mean they gave it to me at seminary so it's not really cheating to look up all the hebrew and the greek and all that stuff and so i thought well maybe there's something here because this is really harsh like loathe yourself i mean it's got to be something a little bit more gentle than that maybe it means you know just to not feel good about yourself for a little while. No, unfortunately, the Hebrew is actually like loathe, like hate yourself. It seems harsh. When I read this, to think that you are to loathe yourself, then he goes on and he says, not for your sake that I will, do, I will act, declares the Lord God, that you might be, that let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded. Man, it seems harsh. Why? Why is, why is God so harsh when he talks about conviction? He's harsh about conviction because sin is a serious business. Seri- sin is not a light indiscretion. Sin is offensive and vile. Profaning God's name is serious. Whether we do it with our mouths Or whether we do it in our actions. When we set up idols in our hearts in the place of God, that is serious. Our sin breaks our relationship with God and results in death. God is not being mean in this passage. He's also not being melodramatic in this passage. He's being realistic and serious about our sin. I did something a few weeks ago that I haven't, I've never done before. I, I don't really want to do it again, but I probably will have to do it again. And that is I went to jail. Now, I didn't go to jail because I did something wrong. I was there visiting somebody. And in Brevard County, in the jail system, you have to like go to a visitation room, and then it's like a... It's like a little screen and a telephone, and um, you have to like kind of like weave back and forth, make sure you're like in the pictures, so the guy can see you on the other side. And I was talking to a guy who had been coming to our church and was arrested uh, for theft and um, for other things. And I went to talk to him, and I wanted to tell him something, and he made it very easy for me to tell him this because I said. So are you sorry? 
Are you sorry for what you've done? He hurt a lot of people. Abandoned three children. I said, are you, are you sorry for what you've done? He said, oh, you have no idea how guilty I feel. And as the conversation went on, you could tell he didn't, he was not sorry for what he did. He just felt guilty. My friends, the Bible never tells us to feel guilty. It never says, man, you should really feel guilty about yourself. The Bible says you are guilty. There's a big difference. We can, we can live with the feeling of guilty. I'm a little bit overweight, so what if I ate a donut yesterday? You know, I shouldn't have eaten it. I should have gone for a run instead, but you know. You can live with the feeling of guilty. And this is what I went to tell him. That until he acknowledges that he is guilty, there will never be hope. There will never be salvation. And this is what this passage is saying. You are guilty. Only when we realize our guilt, only when we realize why we should loathe and be ashamed and be confounded will we realize the freedom that God has given us in his grace. Here's the good news. The motivation for God's plan. The goal of God's plan for his glory The action of God's plan, calling, cleaning, changing, convicting his people. The motivation of God's plan, his grace. When I I, um, came up for the the title of this sermon, I call it Radical Grace. And uh, somebody in my church, I'd used the title before and somebody in my church back home said, I don't know if, you know, why we need to have like radical grace. Why can't it just be grace? And that's fair enough. Grace in and of itself is amazing. Well, even then I use an adjective. But I believe this is radical grace. Grace completely undeserved, unearned, and poured out lavishly. The motivation of God's plan, the why, why would God do this? It is fueled by his grace for you and for his people. Look at verse 28. You shall dwell in the land that I give your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all your uncleanlinesses and I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. My friends, in our sin, in our profanity of God, God has every right to destroy and condemn. But God does not insult us. God overwhelms us. This is the grace that we see here. He doesn't meet their needs. He overwhelms 
their needs. That is radical grace. That is the motivator of God's plan. But C.S. Lewis says, He was talking about his dog, and he said, when I put a piece of food on the ground and I point at it and my dog comes in, is the dog going to look at the food or look at my hand? And he said, most of the time, the dog will look at my hand, sniff my hand, lick my hand. He won't even see the food. This passage is beautiful. It's a beautiful explanation of God's plan, but it is a hand. And it is pointing to something far more valuable. And what it points at is the gospel. What it points at is Jesus Christ and what Jesus has done for us. Romans 9, or Romans 3, sorry, if you you want to turn there with me. Romans 3 lays out... Sin and the darkness of sin. And for the sake of time, I won't read through all of that, but I encourage you to go back and read it. Romans 3, 9 through 18 talks about the depth of sin. And it ends with, there is no fear of God before their eyes. And in verse 21, you have one of Paul's famous lines. But... God. I don't want you to listen to this, for this is what God has done. This is God's plan executed. He has a reason. He has a goal, he has an action, and he has a motivation. Listen, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets Bear witness to it. Do you remember back, I think it was uh, in verse 23 of the Ezekiel passage we were just reading. It talks about how God said, I'm going to manifest myself. God manifests himself. The righteous and bears witness to the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. God's plan is a plan of redemption. It is one of radical grace. This passage says, while we were still sinners, while we still hated God with our hearts and our spirits, while we would much rather worship an idol than the one true God, with our twisted hearts and our twisted spirits, God loved us. For his name's sake, he set Christ to die for us. But my friends, God's plan is not over. On the cross, Christ yelled, it is, he cries out, it is finished. That is the completion of God's redemptive plan. And now he is making all things new. God's radical grace is now spreading throughout the world. 
When we look around this world, I know personally, when I look around this world, I get very disheartened. When I look at our youth group in our church, I get very disheartened. When I look at the high school kids that I talk with regularly, I get very disheartened. When I look at the young families in our church, I get very, when I look at my own life, I get very disheartened. But God says nothing can stop my plan. Nothing. I am calling a people. I am cleaning a people. I am changing a people. I am convicting a people. So that my name will be vindicated. He does this through things, my mom calls them trophies of grace. So I encourage you. This is what a trophy of grace is. Back when I was in college, I got wrapped up in a pyramid scheme. I know. I was desperate. I needed the money. And I called all my friends to try to get them involved in this pyramid scheme. All my friends were a lot smarter than I am, so they all said no. Except for one kid. His name was Tim. He used to go to our church, but then he had stopped going. He was 19 years old, lived with his girlfriend. He was wrapped up with some very uh, bad characters, and he had made some very bad decisions. In the course of trying to get him to go to one of these meetings so that I could make some money off of him, I ended up sharing the gospel with him because that's what he needed. Tim now is a deacon in a PCA church. He's, wor- he's working toward becoming an elder. He has five children. The last one was just born, and he actually named him Owen. I don't know why. But when I was talking to my mom about him, my mom said, Tim is a trophy of grace. My friends, each one of you are trophies of grace, a testimony to God's plan that God is is at work in this world. And so I encourage you, look at your life. Look at the lives around you. Pray that God's plan will be seen here in this tiny community, tiny corner of the world. That God will call his people. He will clean them and change them, convict them, and they will be trophies of his radical grace. Let's pray. Father God, there is so much to be said from this passage. You teach us so much about who you are and what you have done and what you are doing. And so I just pray that your Holy Spirit will apply what needs to be applied. That we will leave here encouraged. That we will leave here convicted of our sin, but know that there is a hope. In Jesus Christ, our Savior. That we will leave here knowing that there is a plan and it is your plan and nothing can stop your plan. For it is fueled by the blood of Jesus Christ. And I just pray that we will go out refreshed. Go out to be lights and salt in a dark and flavorless world. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.